ride with me in my foul life. What's up, what's up, what's up? Chad Belding back at you, another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you guys and girls so much for all the direct messages. Y'all are infiltrating us with tons of requests on guests, themes, topics, instruction. Keep them coming. We're going to get to them all. I promise. Please keep supporting the partners and sponsors that support us here at the Foul Life, the Foul Life Television. This life ain't for everybody. Jargon Game Calls, Banded, Avery, Greenhead Gear. We truly appreciate it. We're humbled by the growth of the brands. Our podcast audience continues to grow. Please keep leaving us those ratings and review. And please keep telling your friends and family to subscribe. We got a lot of cool guests on our sister podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody, happening right now. Major League Baseball players, UFC fighters, professional barbecuers, grillers, fighter pilots, you name it. They're coming on there. We even have a four-star admiral coming up pretty soon, Admiral Joe McGuire. Can't wait for you all to hear his story as a SEAL Team 6 member and everything he's accomplished during his military career. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Gerber Knives. They are truly the best tool that we possibly can have in and out throughout the year in our trucks, in our boats, in our blind bags. It doesn't matter if we're building a blind, trying to hide from the ducks, the deer, the elk, the turkeys, or we're trying to process, take that meat off of the bone. We depend on Gerber, their dependability, their design, their function, everything built in America, right in Oregon. They are friends of ours. We're humbled to be part of the Gerber revolution right now. Hashtag Gerber Custom. Go on to Gerber.com and build your own custom knife with different fonts, different designs. We put a bunch of ducks on the Foul Life Edition knife. You can see it right now on our Instagram. So Gerber, the Gerber family, Oregon, America, thank you all so much for everything you do for all of our properties. And today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Jack Links. I'm starving. Like I've been doing this fasting deal. Brad Forsyth, our guest, I'll introduce him in a second, but I've been doing this fasting every day from 8 p.m. until noon, and I don't eat anything, and I didn't have a bite of food until noon today, and I eat these. Cold Craft, have you had them yet, Brad? Oh, yeah, they're fantastic. This one right here is the beef and cheddar sticks. I love the Linkwood sandwiches. I love the bites. I love everything that Troy and the family's doing there. Jack Link's protein snacks. Get it with it. They're dry jerky, all the different flavors, and now the new refrigerated cold craft. We're so humbled again to be part of the Jack Link's revolution and the Jack Link's family. We try to eat clean, a lot of proteins, low starches. We're not 100% against starch. I love a good lasagna, a good potato once in a while, but when I'm snacking, I like Jack Link's. That's always in our blind bag, always in our boats, always in the truck, kind of like that Gerber knife. So that's enough with paying the bills. My buddy Brad Forsyth, Chico, California, Chico State alumni, actually born and raised in the wine country of Napa, California. What are you up to, buddy? How are you, buddy? I'm hanging in there, man. Um, just working away a little bit here today. Um, life's a little weird in the world right now, but we're doing the best we can to try to keep things as normal as possible. Especially um, for a socialite like you. What in the freak are you I doing? I know. I know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I've been hurting a little bit in that in that department but i have a few close friends that live out next to me that we we see every once in a while and stuff like that but trying to be good trying to be smart stay at home as much as we possibly can i fortunately for me i'm you know in in the construction industry you know uh the majority of our work is ag and and residential work so it's deemed as essential um pretty unique situation with us we do a lot of field inspection work out there um majority this time of year would be soils and compaction work and uh concrete work so we're there on the job site um 
with not a lot of human contact. Um, if it is, it's one or two guys and we're, you know, doing our best to, to take all the precautions, stay away from each other and stuff like that. So what, what about Chico as a whole? Is it kind of dead right now? Yeah, it really is. It's, it's pretty crazy. I drove downtown a couple of weeks ago to, to get the office equipment for, for my girlfriend's uh, office. She's working, running out of her house and the a downtown area is just shut down. It's like a ghost town. It's amazing. It's just a few people driving around here and there, but nobody on the streets. Um, you know, most of that downtown storefront area with restaurants and bars and stuff. I mean, it's a ghost town down there. Pretty, I mean, the bar life in the Chico State University has been built on the party atmosphere, the bar life. There's great restaurants, great food. I can't imagine Chico with not the Fish Street Steakhouse open. You know what? It is. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty wild. A lot of these restaurants now, they're allowing them to do takeout food and they're surviving that way. They're doing delivery and takeout service. Um, not all of them are able to, to do that, but, uh, you know, hopefully this thing doesn't last too awful long. If they can get a, a delivery service or, or a takeout service that can at least keep them alive. And then actually in the state of California, they made a change, um, where they can sell off sale liquor. Now, if you're ordering food there in a restaurant, you can actually, they have prepackaged cocktails, mixed cocktails. Yet they give you a sheet of paper. You have to put them in your trunk, carry them in your trunk when you're leaving there, but you can actually get cocktails from a bar now and, and not get and not get pulled over for an open container uh not if it's sealed container in the trunk yeah they, you know they well that's cool up in the drive area i saw today that there was a call i, I don't know if you were on that text were you on that text with rocky today they had that call yeah. on outlawing for stopping fishing yeah they're yeah, gonna try to shut down fishing that's been a big controversial thing yeah, over the last couple of weeks i it wasn't as bad i think as a lot of people thought it was i think social media kind of blew it up a lot um saying that that our governor was trying to ban all recreational fishing in the whole state of California. Um, and part of that is too, that happened up in Washington. They banned all fishing up in the state of Washington. For residents? Yeah, yeah, caused a huge outrage. But in California, I believe what they were really trying to do is a, a few little different initiatives that trout season is about to open up here and some of those mountain communities, people flock by the hundreds to go up to these places for opening a trout season. It's like opening day of duck season. It's it's a national holiday for a lot of people. But these small communities really couldn't handle the, you know, the, with the hotels being shut down and all that kind of stuff, this many people going there. So they were a little panicked and wanted some help from the Department of Fish and Game and from the state to, to try to control it. Um, a lot of people panicked and thought they were just trying to ban all of recreational fishing, me included, when I first heard about it. That's the way I read it too. But um, they had an actual uh, meeting today, a tele-meeting they were supposed to happen with the directors of Department of Fish and Game. Um, a bunch of different people have been involved in this thing. Uh, the state assemblyman, the, uh, La Malfa, the, you know, a lot of the politicians got involved with this too, because, you know, the, especially up here in the North State, fishing and hunting is such a huge, you know, income producer and just a way of life up here so it caused quite a panic and i, I talked to rocky this morning uh he was pretty involved in this situation too um you know speaking from his platform he's he's got a lot of pull with the you know being so involved with cwa and and uh, you know with assemblyman gallinger and also uh mr lamalfa too but uh 
this meeting was supposed to happen at 8.30 this morning and it got so flooded with people joining in on this call. I mean, from every Joe Blow fisherman around here, just in an outrage, you know. But so, wait, I, I want to make sure I have this right because I have not had time to read up on it because I've been in meetings and conference calls and podcasts right. all day. Did Newsom try to outlaw fi- or out- stop fishing? Who who tried to stop it? I, you know, the articles that I read, you know, you can believe as much as you can, but they wanted to ban recreation. You know, at first it was guide, guided fishing, obviously, because you don't want people coming in from out of state, yeah. is, you know, coming in and, you know, heavier, densely populated areas coming into our rural areas to try to spread the virus. Um, so the way I read it at first, a couple of days ago, they wanted to, to ban recreational fishing and commercial fishing. Um, you know, that caused a huge outrage. Social media blew this up, of course, way bigger than I think it actually was. But, you know, people jumped in and, and got involved right away. And there was letters written um, to the directors of the Department of Fishing Game. But the way I understand it now, I don't think that was their initial tactic. They were, they're trying to look for specialized areas like these mountain communities for trout season and stuff like that to maybe try to control that a little bit so they didn't have overcrowding of people in these areas. So. Um, that's the way I understood it. But this meeting was supposed to take place today at 8.30, and so many people got on this. Rocky said that uh, the the system crashed. They couldn't mute out all these people. There were so many people on there that the board board members couldn't even get on the the telemeeting, I guess. So they they just said, cancel it. So the meeting actually never took place today. Have you heard any good news nationally, federally, statewide, any good news lately about the virus or as it, as it started to wind down at all? There's so many different reports. What are you seeing as far as the future or is there any light at the end of the tunnel right now, you think? Uh, there, it's so hard to believe because like you say, you, there's so many different reports out there online and everything. And I do monitor them a little bit, the, the state of California in particular. And, you know, you're gonna read read different things. They have all these different charts and stuff. Obviously, the the, the most cases are gonna be in the hev- heavily populated areas. In the state of California, it's Los Angeles. In the United States, it's New York. You know, the heavy populated areas are the ones where people are right on top of each other with recirculated air. That that's obviously gonna be the epicenters. Um, California's, you know hit pretty good just because of the mass people. And I think there's 40 million people in the state of California or something like that. Uh, but the things that I'm reading, and if you can believe this data that they're giving out, we're not getting as many deaths or as many cases per, you know, per capita, I guess you would want to say. Um, the North state, especially, if you look at the cases in California, you know, the majority of them are in Southern California, up where I live in the North state, you know, you're, you have a lot smaller, smaller, smaller communities, a lot of rural communities where people are spread out more and more fresh air. Um, I'm, you know, the cases obviously I think are, are still increasing daily, but a couple of days ago I looked and it looked like the curve was starting to peak a little bit as far as new cases daily and deaths daily. Um, up in, in the counties where I'm at, Butte County, last I heard was somewhere about 13 to 15 cases, but I've heard rumors of other ones. Uh, the little I live in Tehama County, they only have one confirmed case. 
So it's, it's not as crazy panic up here as it would be down in the Bay Area where there's more people. The worry is like, you know, some, you know, like Lake Almanor and these resorts like Plumas Pines right. and where you spend so much of your summertime. If this continues, for sure, that's going to be affected. They're not going to allow summertime boating and marinas and re- and like the oh, the resort up there and everything. I mean, it would affect the whole city, the whole town of Chester. Their Their whole revenue is based on, I would say that Chester, the community of Chester, California, I would, I would guess that at least 75% of their yearly revenue is summertime business. I understand they're going to get some, they're going to get some wintertime stuff and some fly fishermen up late in October, maybe some waterfowl hunters, deer hunters through there, but maybe even more than 75% is probably going to be May through September. I agree with you. Yeah. That's, that's where ever all the businesses up there make their money, you know, in tourism and it's a beautiful place to go. And, when it gets hot here in the valley, everybody wants to be up there and fantastic climate and beautiful lake. I, I me personally, I think April is going to be the worst month of this whole thing. I hope I'm right. I really hope I'm right. I think with well, all they, they've said that this week, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but they said that yeah. this week is supposed to hit America hard. Yes, I believe. I yeah, I, I think so too. I think the actual most of the month of April, including this week, is. You're going to see the most growth of it. Um, I think with all the precautions we've been taking and people, you know, taking it pretty seriously from what I can see up in my area that, uh, you know, it'll, it'll kind of run its course, so to speak. Um, I think as the weather starts getting warmer and the weather starts getting nicer, it'll, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll diminish over time. I really do. And I, 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 like to think that sometime in May we can start seeing things maybe get a little more back to normal. I hope, I hope and pray that's for sure. But uh, well, for sure, for sure, I you know, I just obviously don't want to put anybody in harm's way ever. But man, if you just the the whole it the whole ecosystem, or I guess the whole financial institution of America has kind of been shut down. Farming has to stay going. The essential businesses, the the construction, the road work, I get it. But man, if you, if this goes on further and you take one full summer away from a town like Chester mm. or the family that owns the Plumas Pines Resort, I'm not saying that they're going to be smoked, but they're going to have to get rid of all their employees. The whole, everything will be shut down. I mean, yeah. everybody that you're accustomed to seeing, it's a, it's tragic. I mean, and I don't even know. I think, how to, I think that's everywhere. I think that's statewide. Every, yeah. It's everywhere. I get it. But I'm just saying specifically on what you personally are getting ready to take, take on. But I mean, think about, you know, if this continues, you're going to lose a lot of revenue in a lot of areas. Not you personally. I'm saying that a lot of the right. people that you know are going to be affected by this. And Trump, Trump's whole vision has to be, or his whole focus has to be on getting the economy going, which you know it is. Sure. So it, theoretically, you can't keep America shut down for much longer. You just can't. No, you really can't. I mean, obviously, you got to keep you know people's well-being as, as the forefront. But I, I agree with you. The longer this goes on, um, you know, me being in the construction industry up here, we're in a, a lot smaller area, but the longer this goes on, we're going to see lasting effects going into next year. I, I personally think we're going to see effects of this, um, not more as much as the virus as more as the, the bad economy and the stock market going down. A lot of these private investors are going to hold on. They're going to say, hey, let's see what happens. Let's not dump a bunch of money into a project. But back to your point of, of a mountain community like, like Almanor or Chester, there's probably hundreds of those in the North State up here. They're 
that's their prime time to make money. I mean, they budget their whole season on that summer's income and you take that away and it's, yeah, it's major problems. It take, it take years to come back from that. Yeah. I mean, selfishly, I'm hoping that it, it ends quick. I don't want anybody else to get sick. I don't want anybody else to die. I mean, losing the celebrities we have, it puts it in perspective that this isn't just something that affects anybody in any different circumstance right. or, or, you know, financial level or income level. It just, it, it, it'll take you no matter who you are or get you real sick and just abide by the leadership, listen to them and, and stay home and stay away from people as much as you can. And, and, it's all we can do. And, you know, it could have happened last year where we didn't have a duck season. It could happen where we don't have a duck season this year. The Canadian borders closed. Can you imagine right. if we don't get to go to Canada in September and October, that's going to lose a lot of income for outfitters and Canadian tourism. And mm. it just affects it. It's just a trickle down effect and it's going to keep kicking people in the ass, I think, until we can get out of it and people gain confidence. And I don't know. One of the questions is, is like, what's, where's the confidence going to be when they say, okay, the virus is over. Are we going to rush back into music festivals and go to Oracle park in San Francisco to watch the giants play? I don't know if we're going to be a little bit more timid to be around a big group of people. So it might continue to affect big things like that. They're saying they're going to try to open baseball up on the 4th of July. Now the first pitch was supposed to be last week. Now right. they're saying 4th of July. That means, yeah. you know, a very shortened season. But are the crowds even going to go in there in the summer when when they're still stage fried over this virus and what it's caused so far? There's just a lot of a lot of shit be, that you got to keep yeah. in mind. I'd be hesitant. I would. I'd, I'll be honest with you. In, in a big crowd like that, I think our local restaurants and stuff around here. I mean, I've been lived up here for so long and I'm in a little different situation. I'm in more of a rural area, but I, I mean, I couldn't wait to go back and and try to support these people. I mean, as it is now, we're trying to, a lot of us are trying to support them and the, the takeout efforts and that kind of stuff, just to try to keep them alive. And the people have been stuck in their houses for so long cooking every night. I think they're going to be ready to go out and do that. As far as these large group things, the music festivals and stuff, people might be a little more hes hesitant towards that. I agree with you. I yeah. I mean, I, I would be so. Yeah. Chico, California, Durham, California, Butte Sink, Rice Country, California. That is where, you know, the heart of duck hunting. There's the Sacramento Delta. There's the Salton Sea. There's the, the, all the marshes around the Bay Area, like the Susan and in the Upper Bay and, and Palo Alto and that area. You mainly concentrate your hunting efforts around between Chico and Durham, and you're mainly hunting flooded rice fields with pit blinds in the levees, correct? That is correct. What? is so significant about that style of hunting to you that makes you join the club that you're a member of and makes you focus almost a hundred percent of your hunting efforts. You might go on the occasional dry land or, or sheet water, speckle hunt, speckle belly hunt, snow goose hunt. Why do you get off on a flooded rice field hunt? I, is that what you've done your whole life? Do you still enjoy hunting ducks over decoys on both sides of the levee, pit blind, dog hidden, you have a stud dog. Um, we're going to talk about her, Ellie, Miss Ellie, in a little bit. But why do you do it so much? Does it get you off? Or do you ever get sick of that kind of hunting and say, screw it, I got to get out of here and, and get to the sink. I got to get in some habitat. I got to get in some trees, some burrows, or some kind of buck brush. What is it about flooded rice hunting that keeps Brad Forsyth going back to that same freaking pit blind or same club, <laughs> same piece of property every day? And I'm not saying that in a way except playing the devil's advocate. I know why you do it. I'm just right. trying to get the answer out of you of why you and Joe LeBeau and Mendes and all 
all of these guys continuously go to that same piece of property and say hello to the same group of guys and eat the same freaking biscuits and gravy every morning <laughs> and then shoot widgeon and pintail like they're going out of style. Well, not really pintail out of style because you can only kill one, but why do you continue to hunt that way? I, you know, for me, I've been doing this for a lot of years that when I first started duck hunting, I hunted the Napa river marsh and, and Sonoma Creek area and all that stuff. And it was brutal. We hiked through waist deep mud and waders. I mean, just for four ducks and, and just loved it, but it was pretty tough conditions. You know, when I was in college, we hunted all up around Tule Lake, lower Klamath. Um, I've been a member of a, of a club down in the Butte Sink where you had to ride quads in through flooded stuff to, to get to your boat, to boat out to blinds. So I've done all different kinds of hunting and, um, and, I, and I love all of different kinds. Um, you know, I'm 54 years old now. I've been doing this for a lot of years. I got some old football injuries. Rice hunting's a little bit easier for me, I guess I should say. Um, you know, I'm still a, a pretty busy businessman. So a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll, my, I'll get a chance to hunt an afternoon or a morning. Um, I'm very fortunate to be in this club uh, with, with a good group of my friends that's in a fantastic area. We're, we're near a huge source of birds. Um, uh, it's, very, it's about 15, 20 minutes from my office. I can get down there quickly. Um, it's an area that I know there's always going to be ducks. Um, being, you know, 54 years old now, it's not all about me going out and shooting a limited ducks every day. I, yeah, that's fantastic. It's great to do, but it's not the most important thing. I love the guys that I get to hunt with. It's more about the camaraderie. We have a really nice clubhouse there. We have a really good time. And it, duck hunting is not, you know, there's still some work involved, but it's a lot more pleasurable and, and uh, just being with the boys and having some good shoots. Um, you know, that being said, you know, we're pretty, hunting any flooded rice in this valley up here, you're, you're pretty dependent on weather. <clears throat> Back in the days, we first started hunting the rice a lot we'd get a lot of foggy days up here well the climate's changed up here things are different now with the the burning of the rice the way it used to be now they everything is flooded so we don't get the fog so now we're really dependent on on these weather fronts that come through you know you get into a, a clear pattern for a long time like this season you know we had we had a decent season you know probably a little little worse than the past three that we've had but that was a combination of, of not much weather, you know, from Jan, from, from about Thanksgiving to Christmas, we had a pretty decent season, good flocks moving through and everything. And then you get into those clear patterns. Um, and that uh, combined with, with a, a bad hatch really up North, the numbers were down on, on the, the youngsters coming down. So you've got, mostly mature ducks that have seen this before you know they've, they've been through this whole hunting season they know where they can go and where they can't you know these birds will get out and feed your rice all in the middle of the night they're back in their refuges or in their safe zones before the season or before the opening shoot hours start so um that has a lot to do it we're pretty pretty reliant on weather um you know you get storm fronts to kind of break that up when they can't fly and feed all night long and moving, you know, winds and rains and stuff like that make things a lot better for us. But so what do you let's touch on that a little bit, Forsyth, about 
What are you looking for with your success? You're a good duck hunter. You, you're 54 years old. You've had a lot of seasons under your belt. You hunt with great guys. I understand the camaraderie. But what day do you look at that weather report or the night before? Are you trying to hunt before the storm when the barometric pressure starts to drop? Do they get active on that? Do you have to have wind and flooded rice in that part of California? Um, what gets them off of the closed areas and into your rice fields? Why Why do you go on certain days as opposed to other days? You can only hunt your club on certain days of the week. Do you go every available day? Or do you see some weather patterns where you're like, I ain't even going to bother with it? Or do you still go to see the guys? But what day are you going to go like, oh, boom, we're in it. We're going to be in them tomorrow. Yeah, a good south wind storm, uh, you know, somewhere in a 15 15 mile an hour south wind range. Really like to see it with some precipitation. Um, you know, just overcast sometimes doesn't always get it. Overcast is, as you know, you hunt all different other kinds of parts of the world. When it's overcast, they can see you and everything else. But when you've got some rain mixed in with that wind, you know, it cuts down visibility for them. Those birds are going to fly a lot more. Um, you know, you get too heavy of winds, the 20, 30 mile an hour winds, and it starts getting brutal. Um, you, I have a hard time shooting that wind anyways, too. But, uh, you know, a good, a good stormy day. You know, we, we still get some occasional foggy days, too, where visibility is, you know, bad up high. You want a good high fog, they'll fly underneath it, you know, whereas a ground fog, the ducks will fly right over the top of it. But if you can't have good rain, um, a lot of days on, on north wind days with, with a sunny day, it's great. You know, the sun's in the bird's eyes as they're trying to work back into your decoy spread. and um, I've had really good pintail days on sunny, windy days too. So you're saying that a good day in the rice, you would you you want it to be raining? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of precipitation. Well, major downpour just gets miserable. But I mean, I've had some of the greatest duck hunts of my life, and the you know dumping rain pretty good with a good south wind in their face, and uh, yeah, I've had some pretty epic days doing that. Do you enjoy hunting in the rain? Um, not as much as I used to. Well, I do have good gear. Um, um, you know, if you have really good gear, you can, you can withstand it quite a bit, but getting out there, just getting your butt soaked every day, it, it wears on you after a while and the dog. <laughs> Talk to me about Ellie real quick. You can do, but what have you seen in the changes? Well, what a difference. She's, uh, she actually just turned eight years old. Um, she's one of the smallest labs I've had, little American lab and, um, just a, from day one, just an incredible urge to hunt. Um, she uh, been a really good partner all throughout the years, but she started, you know, showing her age a little bit. She um, started seeing some signs of arthritis and stuff like that. And um, I came to you with it. I I had ordered some some nutritional you know additives to her food because she uh, really bad skin and itching and just you know allergies you can see it in her eyes and joint pain and everything else so you you hooked me up with the Ukanuba guys and uh boy what a difference in her i i mean it's visible uh, almost like it took a couple of years off her life really she has great skin the joint pen went away and um yeah i, I was she made me you made me a believer with Ukanuba, that's for sure was it a, was it something that took place overnight or did, did no. it take a while not really. I mean, I saw her coat definitely got a lot better within the first couple of weeks. And, um, um, 
you know, I do during the hunting season, I do have to get her some, some joint medication from the vet just cause she's done it for so long. And, you know, she's got some arthritis issues and stuff, but, but the, just the dog food alone, the change in her was within a month, two months. I mean, it was noticeable. Did you see a noticeable difference in the way that she attacked her food bowl as far as like the anticipation and the desire to eat and just smoke the meal and be done with it as opposed you know, to the I really food? did. Yeah. She's always been a good eater, but man, she loves the taste of that food too. It, it does make a difference. Yeah. And, and what, what about her energy level? Uh, it went way up. Yeah. Yeah. I was getting really nervous about her. I was actually thinking about getting a new pup this year I didn't know how she'd make it through the duck season last year. And uh, as we didn't hunt as much as normal years, but um, man, she hunted like a champ all duck season for me. So, and I attribute that to the food, I really do. How old is she? She just turned eight years old. So I usually hunt them pretty good, you know, from, from four to eight is like prime time really. And then now I'll, I'll probably get a pup next spring and have her hunt, you know, have Ellie kind of teach the new pup next year. But, uh, I've heard a lot of duck hunters say that you get, you, they get to be seven or eight. They're not, they're not done. No, they're they're ju- not. It's just, it's just time to start slowing them down to where yeah. they still got two or three good seasons in them, but you want that other dog started to where when Ellie's done at 11 or so, or 10 or 11, yeah. that other dog's ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. Now that, that helps a lot and they do learn a lot from each other. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, I mean, they pick up on instincts big time. So what does make, it does make training a lot more difficult though, having two dogs out there. Oh yeah. Where, where, where is she from? What part of the country? Is she a California kennel based kennel? Uh, actually she is. Yeah. I had hunted over her, her dad a couple of times. He was a field trials champion Mason. He was actually a yellow Labrador and uh, one of my business associates owned him and bred her with a female actually at paradise. AKC breeding and uh, um, I was getting my other dog Hannah Jane is starting to get a little older and uh, buddy told me about that litter up there and I went and checked her out and just you know she kind of chose me she was the smallest dog in the litter a little tiny one but uh, one of one of the better hunting dogs I've had she's been a good one what and do you do you think that there's a difference in the color of labs no. are you are you are you biased at all towards any of the colors? i've always had black labs just because that's kind of the traditional color way back then and i've had good luck with them but there's there's really not much difference in them i don't think i think they're they're good if they're bred right and you train them right i mean any dog could be could be a hunting dog but what about a chocolate do you mean that for a chocolate too Ah, uh, I've seen some really good chocolates. Don't be afraid to be honest on this, Brad. And I'm being I've serious. Seen, be I've honest. Ba- hey, back off the camera just a little bit. I've I got to see. Quit hiding I've your face because I know that you're messing with me right now. Are you? You're I've trying seen not a few to laugh. Me kind of schizo. I have. Yeah. Kinda. I have seen some real good ones too. So. Name one. Go. Uh, What's the name? One of good chocolate lab. One. Go. Don't keep uh, quit trying to think, dude. I'm just messing with chocolate lab owners out there. I love, there are there. The way that Brad Arrington put it to me is that there's just less good lines. The odds of throwing a good lab in a a good chocolate lab is, is less because there's just less good bloodlines in America. Like there are for the, the, the abundance of, of black. And then you got more yellow. So there's just less chances, less odds of it being born into a good bloodline with the genetics that are out there. There's more Absolutely. black labs that are solid because there's more 
the odds are higher because of the amount of genetics and blood out there that's that's in America. So that's the way that I understood it. I don't know if I ingested that information, you know, the the uh, the exact way that Brad was trying to lay it down to me. But I've I've seen very few. I've hunted one named Rufus out of New York that Brad brought out um, on a hunt. And he's been on several episodes of the Foul Life. The Chocolate Lab was an absolute stud. The owner was proud as hell. Um, he'll probably throw some more good ones. But Brad just says that there's very few good bloodlines of chocolate labs. And that's what makes it harder to find that, you know, as good of chocolates as you find in a black and then in the yellow. But, I mean, I've had several good yellow dogs um, but the black lab just seems to be king. Like a Chessie, people like Chessies. I just don't, I think they're hard-headed. I think they're stubborn. They're probably harder to train, but some people live and die by them. Some people love golden retrievers, great disposition, great personality. I like a golden retriever too. I just think that the turn-on ability of a dog like your dog, Ellie, is lay in your front seat and just be like the most little best partner you could have and then just turns a switch and is like, while I'm hunting, don't mess with me. Don't even pet me, Brad. Don't even pet me. And then when she, and then when she's done and she's petting you and licking on you and hugging on you, it's that's what you want in a duck dog, in my opinion. And some of them just don't have that switch. They're either on all the time and they bug the living piss out of you and they don't sit still (laughs) and they break a lot and they squeal a lot when they're not, there's just a lot of things that you become very critical of dogs. And I, and I, I think every dog's great. I love dogs. I love, that's fine. I don't like cats. I'll just say that. I didn't say that out loud. Um, if I had a piece of property like yours, I'd probably have a cat for the mouse, but he would never come inside. He would never like look up and scare the shit out of me while I'm watching Netflix, you know, or I wouldn't look up, but, um, I've learned, I've had to learn to love cats. Jeff. Oh God. I don't know how you do it. Like I'd break up with her. Like I love her to death. She, she, she is unbelievable. Smokey is a good one, but not She's when you add cats, when you add cats, she goes, you know, like that level of craziness, that, 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 that video they shot a few years ago, yeah. the level of craziness of a girl that either has a cat or rides with a small dog on her lap or drives with a small dog on her lap in a car, crazier than some bitch. Promise you that's crazy. <laughs> I'm going to tell her you said that. Oh, God, I love Smokey. She's literally one of my favorite females I've ever been around. You can tell her I said that. But she's got to lose the cats. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, though, I I think that every dog's fine. I just think that you become, when you're around a good dog all the time, you start to lose patience for dogs that aren't trained to that level. And I think that... I think that as a dog owner or a duck dog owner, and you tell me if you disagree, Brad, is that don't you owe it to that dog to get the utmost performance out of it with the bloodlines that he or she has or the potential that he or she has? I, just, I don't know. I just I think that if they're going to be a duck dog, that they need to be trained not to break. I don't think a dog right. should break. I think it's a safety issue. I don't think a dog should whine in between flocks. I think that, you know, there's just little twerks that you get. And, oh, and yeah. being around you as a friend over the last five years, you're way more patient than I am with human beings and with dogs you have a lot different a lot different patience level than i do so what what are your thoughts on that well i i think anybody that has a dog even if it's a hunting dog or not you know the dog needs to have manners or it shouldn't be around people but uh with a duck dog and especially i mean any kind of bad habits and my dog has bad habits too and it's my fault not her fault it's how you bring them up and what you let them get away with oh yeah I, I agree. That's a, that's a great way to a put lot it. to do with it. Training and pay. Yeah. And exactly what you're saying. What are you are going to allow them to do? A lot of people are like, why do you discipline the dog so much? I'm like, cause if you don't, they'll walk on you, you know, they'll yeah. walk all over you if they think that they're the boss. And oh, yeah. 
I don't know. I, I just like a good experience in the duck blind and a dog adds a lot to that, but they can also take away from it if it's any, and big mistakes can happen. Safety issues with loaded firearms and, and all of that. But what about hunting a dog out of a pit style hunt like that in California? When you're on a check, you're on a levee, you got a pit blind, the guys, the human beings are down there. The dogs aren't down in the pit, are they? No, they're, you're up on the levee right up, you know, right next to the blind. So it's even more important that they don't break there. I mean, as Ellie's gotten older and, you know, I've kind of slacked off a little on her, but I, I actually have a check cord next to the blind that, that anchors her down just so there is no mistakes, you know, and I probably don't need that. I don't know that she would break, but uh, just from, for her own safety and for my own, you know, I, I can't concentrate on shooting if I'm worried about a dog breaking too. So yeah, it's, it's very important in a rice blind that a dog's really well mannered. Well, now that I'm thinking about it in the situation that you hunt in where you're coming up to shoot at ground level, you're starting from below ground level. So yeah. when you come up and that dog is out in front of you, now they're at your level of your barrel right there. Because yeah, exactly. sometimes you might be shooting a, a, a pintail that's hovering over the decoys at eye level yeah. in a pit blind. Exactly. And that dog would be right there. Yeah, you would kill your dog in a heartbeat. And it happens. Unfortunately, it does happen. You've heard of it happening down there? I have, yeah. And it's it's horrible. And just because of that is why I have a safety cord on her when I'm in the blind. Just if anything were to happen like that, I mean, you're, you know, you're like the same way I am. My, my dog's part of my life. She's, she's with me right now here in the office. She goes with me everywhere I go. Where is she? She's, she's laying out there taking a nap somewhere out in the office. <laughs> I love, I love, I love that dog's disposition, man. She is so chill. And then my, one of our yellowed labs, Duff gets around her and they have a big time. You have you, the layout of your pond at your house has got to be one of the coolest training layouts for a private, you know, just if you're not a kennel, you're not a dog uh, trainer. Right. But that pond is like dead. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. It's a great place to train your dogs. And that's even going to get better now, Chad. I've got it drained down right now. We're just starting uh, building a dock out there, just a straight dock off the edge of things so we can run dogs off the dock too. So. Really? Or tie up your boat to it. Or whatever. Are there, are there fish in there? There is fish in there. Yeah. Um, I had them stocked with really big fish for a while, but we had a little incident with a, a farming company. I don't want to talk about, but uh, I think I remember the story. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, we're going to get the thing back in shape. And I do have a bunch of uh, uh, river channel catfish in there and there are some bass in there now too, but I want to stock it back up with, I want it to be a good place to take out kids and take them fishing and train dogs. And it's just fun having the pond right there next to the house. It's nice. I know this is a foul life podcast and I love talking about dogs in your pond and I love the duck stuff. We'll get right back to it real quick. On, you just said the word fish. You love to yeah. fish for salmon on the Sacramento river, but you also love to get in. You just were sending pictures the other day with your blue steel or whatever that pose is that you've made famous, <laughs> the Zoolander pose, which people can yeah. go to our website or our Instagram and see Brad Forsyth's Zoolander <laughs> blue steel pose. It's my famous shot. You love being on the striper run. Stripe Stripers are called rockfish back east and they're considered a bass correct yeah they are they're they're native to the east coast they they transplant them over here on the west coast chesapeake I, bay area is where they're really big time over there right i believe so yeah that maryland all that stuff maryland there. yeah because I've, I've i've went out there i'm like what are we catching today they're like rockfish we go out and i reel one in it's a striper yeah yeah, yeah. So tell me real quick in in a condensed version you don't need to give me heats and temperatures but and you might not want to put everything in. I don't know if it's proprietary information, but what is the recipe for your striper chowder? 
because that stuff is the bomb. Yeah, I started it out. It's basically a Boston clam chowder recipe um, that I got from somebody a long time ago and kind of tweaked it a little bit. And then I, rather than adding the clam and the clam stock and all that stuff, you start with a lot of fresh vegetables and you cook the whole stock down and the heavy creams and stuff. But I'll take um, any, any, if I have any frozen striper meat that's not fresh, I'll cook that down into that base and make, give it that good, you know, fish background. And then the fresh stuff that I've caught recently, you know, we'll cut up into chunks and throw it in right at the end. And it's phenomenal. I, would, I know you've had it before. It's uh, I need to get a batch going here soon. I'll have to mail it to you since we're So full. that's all you're going to give me on the recipe? I know there's more than just saying it's a, a, a traditional Boston clam chowder. That, that's, more, that's better tasting than most clam chowders you would eat in Boston. We've been to Boston together. Yeah. Um, some good sushi in Boston we've, we've yes, had together. Yes, we found that out too, yeah. But that stuff, you're not telling, you don't want to tell me then. You're just going to say, oh, just follow I think the main, the main thing is, is you start just like our gravies that we make together and stuff. You start with the vegetables. You start with the onions and the, and the uh, shallots. I like to use shallots with that a little bit just because they have that good, rich flavor. And saute those down, you know, in butter and some seasonings and stuff. And you, uh, I don't have the list right in front of me, but there's a lot of herbs involved with that that you cook down first in the pan and then you, uh, then you want to add in your... Uh, some fish meat to get that base going. And then you add in your creams, you know, your heavy whipping cream, that kind of stuff, get that good, thick, solid base. Do you start with a, a broth or a, what, what is your starting stock liquid? Is it mainly, is it, do you use a, a starting broth or a sp- starting stock besides water in the, in the, in the condensed fish and vegetables? Uh, I use a little bit of fish stock sometimes. Yeah. But I, but it, it's mostly just the, the fluids from the vegetables and the celeries and that kind of stuff. I don't use a lot of, and water. I don't use a lot of, I don't use like a chicken stock or a beef stock. Nothing like that, huh? Wow. Yeah. You do that, you do that entire thing with no starting stock, except maybe yeah. the occasional fish stock. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I wonder what would happen if you used a little bit of rendered speckle belly or mallard fat. Like if you put a little bit of that in there with the fish stock. I guess you could because I guess you could because just like any other chatters you use in a bacon too. We we do use bacon in some of Oh, them. we gotta get some rendered duck fat in there. Yeah, some of the renderings off the bacon go into that too. So yeah, that probably would be fantastic. We gotta do that. God, I'm hungry. The last podcast I did before this one, I was with Brett Cannon out of Florida and he had just, we've been, he's been sending me these videos of, um, I don't know if you can see this from where you're at, but he's been sending me videos like this daily because they got, they, the yellow tail are in or the, not the yellow tail, the yellow fin are in right now. Uh And he's, look at these videos he's been sending me. You got to see this. You'll appreciate this. This Where is is he? This is from Fort Lauderdale. Okay. He's in the South Florida, just, just, you know, down by Miami, a little bit North of Miami, but I don't know. If I'm going see. down in September to fish yellowtail and, oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah. Now is that yellowtail or yellow? Yellowfin. Yellowfin tuna. Yellowfin tuna. Look at this. I'm talking like every day he's sending me new videos. He's just getting really creative with rolls and, and different yeah. things. Look at this plate of fish. Can you see that? Look at that. 
Oh wow! That guy's all homemade sushi in Florida off of the he 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 goes out and he sends me this from the dock. He's on the dock and he sends me this and he just does it to piss me off because he knows that I love going down there. Right. But he sends me this from the dock the day the day they come back. Look at that. We need to learn how to make sushi because I'm going down to San Diego in September, assuming everything goes back to somewhat normal. But I'm supposed to go to San Diego off one of those offshore trips down into Mexico and catch yellowtail, which is hamachi, and yellowfin tuna, bluefin tuna. And, I mean, my buddy just went down there last year. They came back with a couple hundred pounds of that stuff all processed and vacuum sealed with that sushi-grade stuff, man. Dude, I'm telling you, the words you just said, we got to learn how to do it. I was telling him on the podcast today. I'm like, I want to be able to do that. I want to be creative. Yeah. I like, I want to be able to get the sticky rice the best that I can. Cause yeah. I have some issues with that. There's that's harder than people think to get the right consistency yeah. there, the right temperature. I didn't the realize right... there's a lot of flavorings in that rice. I never realized I've been. Yeah. The sugars and the syrup, there's a yeah. lot of stuff that goes into that. And then it's like, I was trying to compare it to Brett with, pho, you know, the Vietnamese soup that I love to eat. I'm addicted to pho. Well, I can't I get love... the, fr- I can't get the freaking broth right when I try it myself. <laughs> I can't get it. It's, it's a true t- talent so i want to get better have you ever and i bring this up on so many podcasts people are probably going to hate me for it or write in but on netflix start watching the chef show with john favreau have you watched Uh, any of it yet i haven't have you ever heard of the movie the chef with john favreau i have heard it yeah okay so he made a movie five six eight maybe more than that years ago i've watched it so many times but he's a chef at a high-end restaurant gets in in a big gets disrespected by the owner decides i'm out of here he takes his passion for cooking he says i'm leaving the cooking industry i can't be talked to like that or whatever leaves moves to miami meets this this cuban girl opens up gets a food truck he goes into the food truck business and he starts serving these cubano sandwiches that they that are really you know like ham and different meat with this different kind of cheese on there and it's how you make the bread and prepare it and everything and pickles well that that movie he goes and visits different people um like franklin's barbecue in austin texas and then the guy that behind the scenes is teaching him these recipes and how to cook is is chef Choi, who has three or four successful restaurants in vegas and he's this asian guy that's in his early 50s that's a badass well now they go off and they start this show called the chef show on netflix and they host it together john favreau who was in like swingers and made with vince vaughn and the breakup and he directed iron man and then this chef Choi guy, I think Vince Vaughn or I think John Favreau's like 55 and this guy's like 51. They've been there, done that when it comes to making money and a career. And now all you see in this show is their passion for cooking and food. Well, mm-hmm. They start they they start talking about all these different recipes and his he's Asian and he can cook anything from Italian gravies to stroganoffs or whatever but he can make Asian food that you look at it and then they bring in these other Asians that cook with them and I'm like I want Asian might be my favorite food right now sushi's fuzz yeah. I yeah. love like I'm addicted to it you too. I, if that's my, if I had one food to choose for the rest of my life, it'd be Asian. It used to be Italian for me. And, and I, and I, yeah. I love wild game and I, I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking about, you can bring wild game into this too. And I think sure. of living off the land is fishing. So now oh, yeah. we bring a whole, what you just said is we got to learn how to make sushi. Well, now you bring the whole element of catching your own fish and being able to eat it raw, but safe. Right. And that's what Brett's going to teach me is he's going to do some videos and tutorials with me on a live Zoom video or Instagram live or whatever and teach me what he's doing because he says, Chad, I'm telling you, they taste freaking unreal. So he overnights me last week. 
Yeah. That that day I showed you on the dock right there, he overnighted me. Uh, the yellow fin, the mahi, which is dolphin, which is mahi mahi, is unbelievable. And then, yeah. and then he overnighted me swordfish steaks because they caught a daytime almost a three hundred pound swordfish. Swordfish steaks are amazing if you prepare yeah. them right. But this this yellowfin tuna, he says, is his favorite tuna to eat raw. His second favorite is wahoo, which they're out fishing for them today. I've been texting his dad like, as soon as you catch one, he's like, I'll ship it to you as soon as I catch the, what some. But their third favorite is bluefin, which is the big expensive ones you see on those fish right. catching those tuna shows. Yeah. So he's t- he's taking this yellowfin. And he's, he's making the most gourmet sushi with it with cucumbers and avocado. He's weird, so he puts cream cheese in it, which you know my fascination <laughs> with cream cheese. I freaking hate it. But anyway, I want to get good at it. So I yeah. want to come down when this virus is over and we can finally hug again and shake hands. But could you imagine bringing a cooler full up to your deck at Almanor full of fresh tunas that you caught that day or that 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 week, that couple days before in San Diego yeah. and, 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 and rolling rice and having a bamboo sh- roller. It'd and be a blast. That. It would be yeah. an absolute blast. Be and unbelievable. What, and that may be one thing that comes out good from this whole quarantine coronavirus thing is, is people are ha- being forced to stay home and, and, and starting to appreciate more of the little things in life. And, and uh, people that weren't that good at cooking are getting pretty damn good at it. They really are. And I people really who are. love to cook like you and I, I mean, I, I enjoy the heck out of it. So being stuck at home cooking for everybody, that's right. My wheelhouse. I love Oh that. man, I've been watching this show, dude. And you come out of there. It's like, you know, Eddie Murphy back in the days of delirious yeah. or it was raw. He's like, yeah, I'll take a licorice rope, a box of jujubes. I'll have this. And he goes in the mooly here is going to pay for it, right? All that <laughs> racist stuff. And then the guy looks at him and goes, oh, you must've just watched Rocky, right? Well, that <laughs> dude that just watched Rocky coming out of that theater, like a UFC pay-per-view, you come out of there, you might be the biggest pansy in the world, but you feel like you could whip somebody's ass or like yeah. the comedian Rodney Carrington, who we love. He had that skit 10 years ago when he's, when he's got the boxing coach and he's training for the movie. And he's like, he wakes up in the middle of the night after training boxing. And he's like, maybe I can whip somebody's ass. And maybe. <laughs> And his wife rolls over and goes, you're going to get your ass whipped is what you're going to do. And then he gets in the ring and gets hit. And he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. My ear. Is it bleeding? It's hot. It's really hot. You know, like you think you could whip somebody's ass when you watch Rocky. Right. Well, when I watch yeah. this, this, this cook show, the chef show, I come out of there thinking I'm Wolfgang Puck, the very Wolfgang Puck. The very first episode, they, he has to do an omelet with Wolfgang Puck. Well, several years ago, John Favreau failed at making an omelet with Wolfgang Puck. And Wolfgang Puck is on this show, Brad, and he's dropping F bombs and it's funny as shit i know this is the foul life podcast but this is a big part of being at living the foul life is cooking and and enjoying your bounty well this show makes me feel like somebody that watched rocky i come out of the living room into the kitchen with the freaking eye of the tiger it's the eye of the tiger and i hear rising up back on my feet took my time took my chances remember that song when you heard that whether you had one ounce or a hundred ounces of italian blood in you you literally thought you were rocky balboa Boa, yo Adrian, oh, yeah. right? And then I, I come out of this, I watch this cooking show and I get in there and I get all these and I start visualizing. And that's all it is, man. If you visualize it, like Kevin Costner in the field of dreams, if you visualize it and you build it and you you literally start to put these these herbs together and these spices, and just the way this chef Choi 
uh, demands John Favreau. Like if John Favreau messes up, he'll tell him right there. You're, you're, that's terrible. Like the way they make a grilled cheese sandwich, the way you hold your knuckles when you cut a piece of meat, everything. Mm. It's just, it's, it's not an instructional show. It's just so creative and you get so intrigued by it. And you're like, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. So I keep watching them. The next one, they're down in Austin at Franklin barbecue. The next one, they're at this, this, this house of pizzas called Pizana in the sauces and the wood stoves. And I'm like, Okay, if I ever make any money, I am not going to build the biggest house, but I am going to build a shop like John Favreau did. He has got the most advanced commercial kitchen on his property where they film a lot of these episodes, and that's what we need. You have to have the equipment, but if you don't, you have to make do, right? So now I'm in my kitchen, and I'm like... I can do that grilled cheese the way they did. I can get down at eye level like you are at the water in your pit blind when you come up in a rice check in California pintail hunting. You're eye level with the sandwich. And he's literally like, all right, you see how the cheese is dripping off of this side but not this side? You see how the crust is here? You see how you got too much air in between the crust on the left side and the right side? And I'm like, this mother... He is literally turning cooking into a science, which it is just like working out or training your body or becoming a proficient duck hunter, deer hunter, turkey hunter, crab fisherman, whatever it is. If you love it, then freaking do it right. So yeah. cooking to me now is becoming like, I'm not going to go buy some California roll at Safeway. I'm mm. going to learn how to make that. Even if I have to get some imitation crab meat, which whatever you, if you got real crab meat, then use that. But if you got to use the imitation white fishes or whatever that stuff is, they put in there. Don't even tell me what it is, please. But I still yeah. love it. People that say they don't are lying. They're on heroin if they say they don't love that shit. I, no, I could eat it. But I literally, Brad, I'm so intrigued by what you said of like, let's learn how to make sushi or we should. That's the only thing I've been thinking about lately is I want to become a proficient Asian chef, not turn Asian, which would be pretty bad at Eddie Murphy. I know you. You're the <laughs> F.U. man. Like those... <laughs> But I want to become freaking proficient in cooking uh, Asian pho from Vietnam. I want to, yeah. I want to know how to make a good general chicken. These guys do shit on that show. You and you and Smokey would sit there and go, holy smokes. Yeah. I want to learn how to make that Mongolian beef right there. It's a complete. Dan Danielle is the, she as the she can cook. guyver cooker I have ever met in my life. Last night, her son says he wants pizza pizza and I'm like she just starts throwing stuff she made crust from like bisquick and all that stuff and it was freaking amazing I'm not kidding you she'll just say what do I got I got this 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 oh this. dude she'll love the show she will absolutely die she'll they they yeah. go to Robert Rodriguez's house in Austin Texas he's a movie producer he's done several Sin City yeah. and you know Robert Rodriguez he does uh, he's got a, a custom pizza oven wood-burning pizza oven in his kitchen in his house and he special he shows them a recipe for cauliflower non-starch cauliflower pizza crust and they put yeah. the sauce on and do Danielle will lose it over the show. I'm telling you, it's done that well. It is yeah. done that well to get you that intrigued to cook. Alyssa's like, daddy, are we going to watch an episode of the chef show tonight? And I'm like, yeah, more than one. We're probably going to binge two or three of them. And my mind is racing. Like, dude, I can do that with a mallard duck, but I'm going to take the basil leaves and I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the time and I'm going to do this. And, and you, you just start getting creative. 
And I'm telling yeah. you, it makes that whole provider mentality of your striper chow chowder in that in that moose stroganoff that we made by Habistance that we made that on accident. That and now and now it's like, Brad, we need to make our stroganoff gravy. Yeah. Rocky Merlot, who's you know, he's the paisano. Yeah, you can't make the gravy like mama used to do, right? <laughs> hey, Rocky, chill out. He tasted it and Rock's like, Holy shit, who made this? Yeah. He was like, I need this recipe yeah. right now. Even yeah, Rock, even Rock Merlot, since this Traeger revolution and all of our friendships have been gelling the way they have, he is like cooking at home. During this quarantine, have you been talking to Rocky about how, ma- how much wild game he's been eating? Yeah. Thank God for us yeah. being a hunter and a provider. Thank God for the 4-H and the pigs yeah. that we bought from Rico this year. Thank God for FFA and Future Farmers of America. Thank God for us being providers and yeah. having freezers. And now I'm sharing it with other people. It's the greatest yeah. lifestyle in the world. No, so that was my rant on John Favreau, man. I'm fired up about food, dude. Hey, you know, you. I'm going to mention one thing to you. You mentioned pho, and you also mentioned about, you know, bringing in the wild game into the food. The, the first time I ever had pho, ever, um, I have a friend around here from, uh, uh, well, close to Vietnam. He's from Laos, Santa. And uh, I used to give him ducks, you know. Is mom- he the DJ? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really cool guy. Anyways, his mom is a phenomenal cook. So she takes these ducks. I don't know what she did with them. She cooked them down and all this stuff. And I come over to his house and she made homemade pho with ducks. I mean, with the with the little meatballs and the slice oh. and that. And it was so freaking phenomenal. I have yet to find it like that in the restaurant. So it can be done. Is I, she still alive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's we need to go there and there. have it. Oh, I would God. love, I would love for you. To, now here I am. I just lined this up with Brett. Yeah. I want to do a segment of doing sushi for provider in foul life. I want right. to do, I yeah. want to, because you could put strips of seared duck, you know, duck is only oh, yeah. good, medium, well, medium rare, right. if not less than that, you know, yeah. you could take strips. Some of the best rolls I've had have been in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they take strips of, of filet mignon, seared filet mignon and, and yeah. wrap the top of the roll with it, with the fish on the inside, you know, like right. a surf and turf roll. You could take right. strips of seared duck and put it on top of a sushi roll. Or I want to go and I want to go film a segment with Santa's mom and make pho on TV with wild duck out of the California rice field. Get it. Please start to talk to him and get uh, talks going and discussions going. Because once, be quor- once this quarantine's over and I can come over the hill. I want to do that because we're going to be doing a lot with CWA and we didn't even get into CWA. We'll do it on the next yeah. episode, but I want to, I want you to go to work on that, please. And oh, I can and, set and, that up. She's an amazing, amazing cook. I mean, dude, these, I want to do that so bad. That is, See, that's right uh, up our alley. I want to learn how yeah. to be a better Asian cook. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the wrong way to put that. I want to learn how to cook Asian food better because to be a better Asian cook, you would have to be Asian, that's which, very true. which growing very up, true. dude, I watched every ninja movie every Bruce Lee movie. I could work nunchucks like a mofo in Black Springs, Nevada. I thought I could anyway. I'd break my ass a lot of times and bruise myself a bunch. Brad, I was I was kind of a ninja, a, a redneck ninja. I, I'm going to come clean right now and tell you that I used to wrap a black shirt around my head, my eyes. I'd throw smoke bombs, or at least I thought they were smoke bombs. I'd made homemade Chinese stars and throw them at people, and they wouldn't. Explains a lot. Me. <laughs> explains a lot you know, hey you know what my, my biggest takeoff from this whole podcast that you and i have just done you really need to rethink this intermittent fasting thing dude because like the last 40 minutes all you talk about is food are you tom get him a hot dog or something oh dude i'm telling you it is the hardest thing once you get used to it i've been i'm going on almost six months of it dude yeah you're done great i we did it for a while there too but then uh 
I literally don't even think about breakfast, but once noon hits, dude, frick. Yeah. The, 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 the hard part is to control your caloric intake between 12 and eight. And I do, right. I mean, I, I try not to eat real bad, but this, this cooking deal and this chef show, I mean, I am, I'm trying shit. I did this broccoli yeah. last night for Alyssa, dude. Yeah. Un freaking real. Are you still working on the cookbook thing you were working on? Yeah, it's coming out. I got a call tomorrow. Yeah. I have a, I just, I talked, I had a podcast yesterday with Chad Ward and yeah. I have a call tomorrow with, um, the publisher, Chad Mendez and Chad Ward. And I have a call, a call tomorrow. It's the, I got the name trademark, the provider, and we're going full bore with it. We got workshops planned. We got an interactive website. We got our new logo. That's we're, awesome. We're rocking. That's awesome. All right, man. Wow. I'm going, I'm moving on. I'm going to go get a snack. I got to eat eight times yeah, a day, go, but really small meals. Good I to talk to you, buddy. It. Do you need my address uh, text to you for my for my grab bag of hats, my little? I'm pretty sure I have your address. I will send them. I will send them to you, buddy. Oh well, then while you're at it, I'll take a cooler stacked with uh, striper fillets. Ooh. Okay. Uh, you could put dry ice in there. Put the hats on top. <laughs> I'm being for real. I'm not laughing. Do I even have a smirk on my face? We, we will sit out. We will sit out one of these days and make that chowder together. No, 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 no. I'm talking about in the interim, in the meantime, we should say, you I need, fish. I need some fish. Okay. And you have a river runs through it, Brad Pitt. So I do. And we're being very safe. We're doing social distancing. Yeah, so social distance yourself big, six feet yeah. from a six foot rod and we catch will. me, catch me a couple stripers. Would you please? I don't have anything okay. like that up here. I'm not going to go eat a cutthroat trout. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. Those are, exactly. those are uh, catch and release. All right. Appreciate you. This is another episode of the foul life podcast. Again, today's episode was brought to you by our friends at Gerber knives and Jack links protein snacks. Please support the partners and sponsors that support us. Brand new episodes of the foul life tv airing right now exclusively on the outdoor channel check out all the new merch at thefowllife.com jargongamecalls.com banded.com averyoutdoors.com thank you so much for the support of all of our brands we will be back at you with another episode right around the corner brad Forsyth, california chico durham duck hunter in the rice fields we look forward to seeing our friends in california very soon stay safe stay home Stay six feet from anybody that's in your house. Protect your kids. Protect your family. Get that provider mentality. Go get creative in the kitchen. Tom, hit that button. This is 2 a.m. Logic, My Foul Life. Chad Belding, thank you all very much for listening to another edition of the Foul Life Podcast. <laughs>